come to the sermon this morning, I, uh, as I said at the beginning, what I want to try to do this morning is I want to try to help us all understand why exactly would anybody baptize their children. And, and I, in saying this, I do not want anybody here to leave here today um, thinking that, oh, this is a church that baptizes its children so that if you don't uh, do that, you don't belong here. No, 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 not even in the slightest. Um, we actually, this is one of the beautiful things about the CREC denomination. It's actually um, a denomination that does not um, form itself around a distinctive on baptism. They don't believe it's actually to be an issue of fellowship. Like whether someone baptizes their baby or doesn't, that is not an issue of saying, well, this is what, this is what identifies us. And so this is, this is what, uh, where our fellowship will allow us to go. And it's not true at all. Because it's not an issue of fellowship. It's an issue of, uh, it's a distinctive that it's one of those things that often in the Christian faith as we go throughout, there's things that we differ with others on and they're just not, ma- they're not issues in matters of, uh, unity and fellowship. But in saying that, I also want us to be the kind of place where, hey, we can have these differences and we can talk about them and we can discuss them and we can actually articulate them to pursue even greater unity. So, of course, we all want to understand this. So I think it, and the other thing it's important to do is there's times when, if you haven't taught on this for a while, you can really forget exactly why we do it and not understand it, and then we drift off into weird superstitions. And so I think there's a danger there as well. So before we get into this, let's pray real quick and ask God for mercy. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. And we do ask even now, right now, O Lord, grant us grace that we would know and understand and and hear from you and your word and come to to, to understand what it is you're teaching us on the subject. Be merciful to us all, we ask in Christ. Amen. I want to begin this morning with how God views children. The children, specifically, not just every child, but children of Christians. How does God view them? How does God see them? And I think this is an important starting mark for us to understand where God, how God views them, and then go from there and understand how this is connected to, to baptism as we move along. The first thing I want us to see is that God always makes covenant with us and with our children. This has been the way it is from beginning. Now, when I use the word covenant, not everybody understands that. But the, what, the word, by covenant, God always makes covenant. It's a, think of it this way, a binding relationship that is, that has both attendant blessings and cursings connected to it. So that if those who are faithful to covenant receive blessings, those who are unfaithful, cursings. Here's a great way to think of it. One of the best analogies is marriage. You enter into our marriage covenant. And so when marriage people come together, marriage, marriage people, uh, when married people, um, what they have is a covenant binding relationship. They swear to one another to loyalty. They're not dating. It's not like, let's just cruise along for a while, enjoy some of these blessings, and if we ever want to depart, let's just depart. No, actually, it comes with some teeth to it. So there's, there's blessings to faithfulness and there's cursings to unfaithfulness. And, it's, and that's the best analogy to think of in terms of covenant. So having understand that, uh, understood that, we come to the very beginning, God will enter into relationship, and he always enters into relationship through covenant. Not, God doesn't date, as I've said before. With Adam and Eve at the very beginning, the covenantal blessing was upon them and it was upon their children 
that would come after them. God was going to be with them and their children as they were being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth. However, if they broke the one commandment, and we know what it is, that one commandment, that you shall not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? And if you do, the moment you do, you will surely die. And in that death, we've looked at this a few times before, it's a separation. It's it's from God, who is life. And now you're, that relationship's torn in two. And now you're separated apart from God. So the curse of death would fall on them if they obeyed, if they disobeyed this one command. So there's this covenantal structure there in the very beginning. And this goes through all posterity so that whatever happens to the parents happens to the children under them. And we know that they broke the covenant. They broke the covenant and they were put outside the garden and separated from God and death came. But then God made a new one. God made a new covenant with them. And in this promise was the promise of the son he would send. Uh, to his people. And we know that there's, uh, this, this goes throughout all the way till the sun comes, this particular promise. But then things got, went from bad to worse, and God had enough of sin, and he had enough of death, and so he flooded the earth and started over with Noah and his family. He said this in Genesis 9, 9. Then God spoke to Noah. This is after the flood. God speaks to Noah and to his sons and, and, and with him saying, now behold, I do establish my covenant with you. Now this is, instead of just seeing the covenant in structure, we now see the covenant in actual specific word. He uses the word covenant. Establish my covenant with you, and this is what he says, and with your descendants after you. Get familiar with this phrase. I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. It's a common feature of the covenant. God makes it with the parents and with the children. We see this come up again when God calls Abraham and enters into covenant with him. Here's how it's articulated in Genesis 17, 7 through 14. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then he goes on to give them the sign and seal of this covenant, which is circumcision, as we heard read this morning. Then several hundred years later, under Moses, God establishes covenant with Israel. And here's what he says in Deuteronomy 7.9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Now, now, when you see the word thousand in scripture, it's often just used as a, a, um, a word that describes a thousand is like perfection. Basically forever. Another way of saying it, everlasting covenant. We also have David in Psalm 102.28 rejoicing in God's covenantal faithfulness when he says, The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. This is very similar to what we, what says in Psalm 103, 17 through 18. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who keep, fear Him and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. Or Psalm 25, 12 through 13 says, Who then is the man that fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. He will spend his days in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. God gives a promise and covenant to David, and David includes him and to his children. This is how God makes covenant with his people all throughout the Old Covenant. I will be your God, and you will be my people. The promise is to you and to your children. Now the question is, has anything changed in the New Covenant? 
Was this just an old covenant promise? To which I'm going to argue that God still makes covenant with us and with our children in the new covenant. And I say this because when it comes to the promises of the new covenant, it speaks in the same language that the covenant promises will be to us and to our children all throughout. As, as the new testament, says the new covenant is promised in the old. Listen to this language. Isaiah 59 verses 21 through 22 says, and the redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Now who is the Redeemer who will come to Zion. Who are they referring to? Jesus. The Redeemer that's going to come to Zion. Now the Redeemer will come to Zion, he says. And and he goes on to say, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. So now he's going to talk about this new covenant that he's going to make with the people. He says, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So this is God's promise to his people in the old covenant about the new covenant he's going to establish. And you hear the same covenantal language, the promises to you and to your children. And then in Isaiah 65, verse 23, this famous passage where he's prophesying and giving a glorious vision of the reign of Messiah. And right after it talks about the lion and the lamb lying down together, it says, And they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. This is what's going to happen under the reign of Messiah. This is the blessing that's going to be there, the same covenantal language. And then there's Ezekiel 37, 22, 24 through 26, which says, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. Now, he's referring here to Jesus. Because David's been long gone and dead for a while. And so when he's talking about my servant David, he's talking about the one who had come through David, this king, Jesus, the Messiah. And they shall be, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I give to the servant Jacob where their fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I'll set them in their land and multiply them. And and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is a picture and promise of the kingdom under Jesus in its consummation. What you're hearing here is a lot of consummation language, language about what the kingdom is like when it's fully consummated. But at the same time, in the midst of this, this, this glorious new kingdom is this covenant, this covenant, and he says, it's to you and to your children. Then in Jeremiah 32, 38 through 40, it describes the new covenant being so much better than the old because God will give us new hearts. It says, They shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Once again, God makes this new everlasting covenant with his people, his children, and their children. And this is the promise of the new covenant. 
that the promise is going to be to you and to your children. So when we arrive in the New Covenant, as recorded in the New, Co- New Testament, we should expect this kind of language. And here's the first declaration that we discover with this kind of language. Peter gets up and declares the gospel in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. And here he's preaching to God's people, and he concludes with this in verse 49. And the promise is to you and to your children. So the question is, what are the Jews hearing? Has something changed in the new covenant? Is, is, is it different? No, the promise is to you and to your children. This is the idea, this is how the covenant is structured. They're hearing what has always been said about the covenant. They're you know, nothing new there. The problem with thinking that this, uh, this, the way that this somehow concludes in the New Testament or the New Covenant is just not understanding exactly what is going on. Could you imagine for a moment if, if the children were no longer included in the covenant, if it wasn't, they weren't part of it at all, this would be a big issue. Big issue. What do you think would happen? They would have to actually, there would be a whole, probably full books explaining and teaching to these people why this is no longer the case. Something's changed. And why do I say that? Because that's exactly what happens with the issue of the Gentiles coming in. A big change happened in the new, in the new covenant. In the new covenant, it's not just these circumcised Jews. Now you have Gentiles coming in. It's this Jew Gentile and the, and this is blowing the Jews' minds. What? The dogs are coming in? The uncircumcised Gentiles? This, this caused such a commotion. They're saying, no, 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 this cannot be. They must first be circumcised, become Jew, and then they can come into the covenant. And this caused such a hoopla within Jerusalem that they, in Acts uh, chapter 15, they had to call a council. And that whole council is about, what should we do? Should Are the Gentiles in? And if they're in, don't they have to get circumcised first before they're in the covenant? And then Peter stands up, he says, listen, folks, I get what you're saying, but you have to understand something. I saw with my own eyes. The Spirit came down upon Cornelius and his household when they, when they believed it was, it had nothing to do with circumcision. They received the Spirit. And if they received the Spirit, the same Spirit we received, they, the, God Himself dwelt in them and among them. If God calls something clean, we dare not call it unclean. All right? And now, if you look at Paul, Paul had in many of his letters, you look at Galatians and even in Romans and other epistles, he has to explain to them how this works. The Gentiles are in. The biggest problem he's having with them is stop. No, you do not have to get circumcised. You're in. You're washed clean in Christ Jesus. You're part of the people of God. So we have to understand that in the New Covenant, this whole idea of children being part of the new covenant is, is nowhere is it dismissed. In fact, it's affirmed, it's understood, it's assumed. It's just the way they operate. They don't even, I mean, apart from Acts chapter 2, where, where Peter declares the promises to you and to your children, you also have Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, who makes a very explicit statement, which I read this morning, that if, if you have, this is how God views our children. If you have a situation where two people, you have two people, uh, they're both unbelievers, and one is converted, and the other one is not, they're, they're wondering, okay, so what's the status of our children? Are they in or out? Like, that seems like a dilemma. 
And Paul says, well, what God does is he actually sanctifies the unbelieving spouse so that your children are holy. Otherwise, they would be unholy, but it isn't. They're holy. They're actually, they belong to him. They're set, this whole idea of separated to him and considered saints. Now, this is significant. There's two different Greek words for the, what happens to the unbelieving spouse is they're sanctified, set apart. Unto God for a special purpose. The children, it's a totally different word. They're actually considered holy. A lot of interpretations will say holy. This is one of the few places where that word is actually interpreted holy because everywhere else in the New Testament, it's mostly interpreted saints. So most of Paul's letters, if you remember, when he addresses the church, he says to the saints who are in Corinth. Corinthia, who are in Corinthia, uh, Corinth, to the saints who are in Ephesus, to the saints who are in Philippi. He always addresses the saints there. And that who are those group of saints? That group of saints includes the believers and even mixed relationships with their children. And so that's how the scripture affirms this and wants us to understand this. You don't have a single explanation as to why children, nowhere, that children would no longer be a part of the covenant. So, here's something that uh, sometimes we go, okay, okay, I'm following so far, but... When it comes to the New Covenant, I think this is where some Christians stumble, I guess, or, or just have a hard time with this. It says, they think of it this way. The Old Covenant was a, was a, a successive, a line of succession through Abraham until Jesus. But once Jesus came, it was no longer about covenant succession through our children, but now it's about individuals coming to faith. I think that's often the paradigm that's operated in. So when you think of, yes, I hear what you're saying, Dean, it used to be through the old covenant came through children, the line of Abraham, covenant succession through children, to the, and the point was Jesus. Once we get to Jesus, that shifts, and it's no longer like that. Children are no longer included in the covenant for that reason. It's about individuals now coming to faith. But here's something we have to understand. Nowhere in Scripture was the old covenant to be thought of as a salvation by genetic connection. And the new covenant somehow thought of as salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Paul explicitly says in Romans and in Galatians that Abraham was saved the very same way we were by grace through faith. It's always, salvation has never changed. It's always been this way. Hebrews, all the great examples in Hebrews 11 are all the old covenant saints of faith, those who believed God. There was never ever salvation by merely being born of Abraham, ever. Nor by simply being circumcised, ever. Paul attacks this, uh, Romans chapter 2, at the end of the chapter. So those, those who are circumcised, do they have an advantage? Well, not unless, they, not unless they believe God and follow after God, there's no advantage at all. In fact, it actually is, it's a bad deal if, if you think that somehow just by your connection that you're, you're saved. All these things, everything in the Old Covenant pointed to Christ and is fulfilled in Christ and glorified in Christ. This is why Paul says what he does in Galatians chapter 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The difference between the, the covenants, according to Hebrews 9, was that the old covenant was physical and fleshly, while the new covenant was established, or sorry, and it was established in the blood of bulls and goats, whereas the new covenant is spiritual, established in the blood of Jesus. 
But salvation is the same in both. It's not about succession and then non-succession. It's a, it, what happens is that the old covenant is shadowy and full of types, and, and it's all it's fleshly, it's of this earth, and the new covenant's the spiritual, and the new covenant fulfills. What Christ comes to do is fulfill and, and magnify the covenant. The covenant is so much better. It's, it's everlasting, it's eternal, it's glorious, it's good. And, and, and no, it's not, and oh, by the way, it no longer includes your children. No. Even the promises, as we've already read in the covenant about children, are so much better in the new, so much more glorious. It's like, no, it's, it's better, it's fuller, it's more complete. You, this is one thing you'll notice. In the old covenant, so many of the children fall away and apostatize. In the new covenant, they some still do, but the va- way more, if you were to compare the covenants, what you see is you see a stream of faithfulness in the new covenant that was promised, and of course, there are some that fall away. When the old covenant, you see a stream of unfaithfulness where the vast majority are falling away and all you have is the skinny line of those that God has preserved because he has to constantly, constantly be disciplining them and working on them. Why? Because in that covenant, it didn't address the issues of the heart like the new covenant does. We receive the Spirit, our heart, we are given new hearts. The law, instead of being written on stone, is on written on our hearts. Things are dramatically different. In this new covenant, God, tur- God turns the hearts of our children towards the fathers and the fathers towards their children. This is the glory, part of the glorious promise. So hopefully we can see that in the new covenant, the children are still part of the covenant. And they still belong to God. God still, God delights in them. But perhaps you're sitting here and saying, okay, Dean, I follow you so far. I can kind of see how the scriptures say that children are members of the new covenant because they belong to parents who are in the covenant. But that still doesn't answer why you should baptize them. Why does the Bible not explicitly tell us to baptize our children? If what you're saying is true, why wouldn't it say that? What I, you might be saying what I read is it tells you to baptize those who believe. You believe and are baptized. And that's a very good question. It's an appropriate question. It's a logical question. And to answer that, let me simply say that God always gives a sign and a seal to the covenant, and this has ramifications. It's, you'll see how this comes together in a moment. In the new covenant, God gives the, the sign and seal of baptism. In the old covenant, he gives the sign and seal of circumcision. And here's, if you want to think about it, why does he do this? If you think about the nature of the covenants, it makes sense. The old covenant is a covenant, a fleshly, earthly covenant in the flesh. The sign and seal was a covenant signed and sealed in the flesh. The foreskin was removed. In the new covenant, what we have is baptism, because in the new covenant of the coming of the Spirit, what were they doing? They were baptized with water and the Spirit. This is fulfillment. The anticipation in the new covenant is that the Spirit would come and be poured, poured out upon the people. And when he's poured out, they call, this is the baptism of the Spirit, where the Spirit is poured out upon God's people. And so that's actually even, you might wonder, well, why do you guys pour? You're baptizing and you're pouring. Well, because we think it's a good, faithful, theological connection to what exactly happens in baptism. God poured out the Spirit upon the, on the heads of His people. And in like manner, it's this, the, 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 
the symbolic representation of the water is how God's pouring out his spirit on his people. This is the, so the sign and seal, the sacrament God attaches to the new covenant is this baptism that pictures that, demonstrates that. Just like in the old covenant, it pictures and demonstrates a removal of this, uh, it's very fleshy and bloody and it's kind of really emblematic of the whole covenant itself. And I, in saying that, I also want to say that other modes of baptism, they actually they have theological, I, th- I think, significance. And you, you can make really strong arguments for sprinkling, really strong arguments for full immersion. And I don't. And the thing is, even that area right there, like when you get into studying baptism, you re- realize that there's even dry baptisms in in Scripture. Go to First Corinthians ten, and it says they were baptized into Moses in the sea. That's a head scratcher. That's a baptism where the sea is parted, the waters are parted, and they walk through on dry ground. And he called that a baptism. Interesting. So in regard to this whole idea of baptism being a sign and seal of the entrance into covenant, one of the great arguments or understandings of this is Matthew 28, where Jesus commissions the church to go into all nations. We're to go baptize the nations, right? And what's the first thing you do? Go to all nations and make disciples of all nations and baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's an entrance point, and then you disciple and teach and train them. So it's an, and then also we have Colossians chapter 2, 11 through 12, which says, In him also you were circumcised. Now, you should perk up and go, this is weird. We were circumcised in him. He says, in Jesus, we were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Hmm? Yeah, actually in Christ, we were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, no, no human performed this. Well, what is it? What are you talking about? In the old covenant, it was a putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision. But now in the New Covenant, he says, having been buried with him in baptism, having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised you from the dead. So in other words, God did a work in baptism that's very, um, it's like the spiritual formation form of circumcision. Where you were circumcised with a circumcision without hands. This is the promise of the new covenant, that he would circumcise your hearts, that he'd give you a new heart, that he would work in us by the Spirit. And so he's saying, he's, he's paralleling them, but at the same time showing how, uh, how powerless the old covenant is and how powerful the new covenant is. The power in it is that it goes right to the heart and circumcises the heart. So I think it's safe to conclude. There's other, and there's lots of other passages that we could look at if we had time. But, the, the sign and seal of the new covenant is baptism. This is what the entrance point by which you come into covenant with God. Now, the, you know, here's the thing. Here's where the, I think we get stumbling a little bit. Uh, when we see in scriptures, what we see is say, hey, okay, hey, Dean, what I see, what I notice, if I'm a careful observer of scripture, it says that they believed and were baptized. So, I get the entrance point is, is, um, is, is baptism. It's a covenant sign and seal. But hey, hey, wait a second. I'm scratching my head here a bit and, and I'm not reading it. In scripture, it talks about believing and then being baptized. Well, here's something we have to understand that the gospel, when it comes, this is a brand, the new covenant is, guess what? 
new, brand new. So as it comes, what you would expect to see are the, everybody has to come in through the entrance point. Everybody has to take the sign and seal of the covenant. Everyone, if they're going to come in, has to be baptized. And so as it goes out, the people who are responding are going to be adults who hear, understand, and then come in. That makes total sense. But you also have to see and understand that there are some clear pictures in Scripture where you have households coming in, whole households. You have, in, in, in the book of Acts alone, you have Cornelius' household in Acts 11, 14, the Philippian jailer's household in Acts 16, 33 through 34, Lydia's household in Acts 16, 15, and Stephanus' household in 1 Corinthians 1, 16. The, everyone, the whole household, whenever it mentions household, that whole household was baptized. Now, of course, the rebuttal is this. Well, of course, they were all baptized. They all believed. That's why they were baptized. Well, that doesn't completely stand up to the context of Scripture and actually that, the culture of that age, and here's why. Because in that culture, whenever the head of a household uh, determined to serve a god, or took a household in a certain direction, it automatically meant that everyone in that household would go the same way. And if they didn't, and they, they, they could make a choice, they didn't, that would either come with severe discipline, or exile, or in some cases, death. It's not, not something you do lightly. It's a serious, serious thing. If you go against, this is why Jesus warned in the gospel, some of you are going to make decisions, and it goes against the household you belong to, and your family members, it could mean death for you. That's how they functioned in that day. Not only that, but think of this. You have to realize that every family in the culture in that age wants to have as many children as possible. Because the more children, the more honored and the more esteemed you would be, the more impact on the world you would have, and then your name could go out in the, in the world and be everlasting in their mind. Like if you could take your name and, and spread it into the world and say, these are children of Dean Hellickson, that would be the most glorious thing in their mind. So given that cultural paradigm, do you honestly think there were no children under three in any of those households? I don't think so. It's not, it, that, that's a, that would be a hard stretch. That would be a, a tough concept to think. You've got five households or four households, and there's not one where you got little, don't have little children there who, who aren't making personal decisions. So I think it's actually it's a tough concept to, to, to buy, especially when you understand the cultural context. What, what we see, I believe, are wonderful examples of exactly how it would function. When we see individual adults believing, they believe and are baptized. It makes perfect sense. When we, see a head, when we see head of households, we see the head of household believing, and then the whole, whole household's baptized. That makes sense. It makes sense if we understand really what's going on. This is a brand new thing happening, moving forward. And so you have these two distinctions going on. Now, in saying all that, let me just wrap this up really quickly, come to a conclusion and say this. I truly believe that if, if you look at it all, me personally, I'm of the conviction, I used, to, I used to not believe any of this because I didn't understand covenant at all, but then as it took a long time for me to wrestle through this and think through this. Um, and in me saying this, if I have not convinced you in any way or brought you along, um, that doesn't really matter to me. I, I don't really care. You're free to, to disagree with me on any level. That's totally fine. 
Uh, the only thing I want you to be able to hopefully go away from is that, with is this. Oh, I get why you do that. You're not crazy and weird. You're not out to lunch. You don't do something that's just this just man-made tradition that you made up somewhere. That's what I hope you come away with. No matter where I know in this congregation, we've got a we've got several who believe this and several who don't believe this. And so I don't want you to think in any way that you know this now. I've, uh, you have to believe this. Nor do I want you to think that uh, go away from here thinking that we're still weird. And because if you do, please talk to me. I think that there's, um, I would love to dialogue over this and discuss it more. And there's lots of really good resources. If you, if this has intrigued you at all and you love to research it even more and understand it better, there's some wonderful resources that you could read and look into in regard to it. So that's all I want to say. I think that, uh, as we're, we're done here this morning, I want us to just go away thinking about this hopefully rightly and properly. Whether you believe it or you don't, you kind of get and understand the discussion at least. And remember, as you leave here today, Jesus loves the little children of his people. And I want to leave you with this. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And and when he did that, the disciples rebuked them. But when he saw it, He was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. God loves our children. Amen. Father, we're so thankful that you love us and you love our children. We're so grateful for the covenant that we've entered into. I praise you, O Lord, for your grace in this regard, and I ask that you would help us all to, to delight in your love for us in Christ. Amen.